Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. As you're turning there, I want to remind us, I'm continuing to try to preach about the ecclesia. This is the fourth time that I've tried to preach about the Lord's body. And I hesitate to say this is part four because this is not a planned series. I, I don't, from week to week, know exactly what I need to say until the Lord prepares me. So I just want to say this is the fourth time I've tried to preach about the body of Christ, this, this um, short season of time. And I want to remind us, uh, we looked at an overview of the factors that should influence the congregation. Uh, we looked at the, the history uh, and the translation of the word ecclesia. And why I'm saying the word ecclesia instead of church is because it's, it's more accurate. We say church, it has all this religious connotation that is not what the New Testament and Jesus intended. So I'll say congregation most of the time. Then we talked about in the next message a little bit about who Jesus is. And I want to remind you, not only is Jesus the Son of God, He is God, He's the exact image of the substance of God, He's the eternally existing Logos, He's the Savior of the world, the remitter of sins, the mediator between God and man, but He is also the head of the ecclesia, His body, whom He gave Himself for. I don't think we understand in my generation, and by generation I don't mean age, I mean this epoch of time we're living in. People don't understand how important the congregation of Jesus is. That's what I'm burdened about today. You don't realize how important it is. And maybe some of you do, but as a whole, we don't get it. Not only did Jesus come to the earth to die so that we might be saved, He spent His earthly ministry hand-selecting the people that He would use to found the ecclesia. That's what He did with His earthly ministry. He was perfect. He could have just been born. He could have just appeared. He could have just died. That could have washed away our sins. But what He did with those approximately three years that He was on this earth was establish the body of Christ. And then commission them to go into the world, spread the gospel that He taught and lived, baptize people in a scriptural manner, and disciple them according to the teachings of Jesus. That's really why He came. And we, we, we I'm talking to myself here, we neglect to understand how significant this is. So that's, that's where my burden is today. Jesus is the head of the body, the ecclesia, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. I reminded us last time, I'll remind us again, everything we do in the Lord's service must focus on God. If you have a word from the Lord in the service, say it. Not while I'm preaching, but in the service, feel free. If you have a song, feel free. If you have a testimony, feel free. If you need to pray, you can pray anytime, even while I'm preaching. You can come up here and pray. This bench isn't holy. It's not going to save you. It's not going to make your life straightened out. But you can pray here if you want to. And that's always appropriate. But the most important thing is that we keep our eyes on Jesus. So let's read this, and then I'll dive right into what's on my heart. <clears throat> I said the very first thing that it should influence a true New Testament congregation is 
the life and teachings of Jesus. Everything he explicitly commanded, everything he lived, everything he modeled, everything he taught. That should be the primary influence on how we order our services, how we worship, how we pray, how we interact with each other. Should all be influenced by him and his life and his teachings first and foremost. There are other good influences. I talked about six categories that are all good. But that's the first category. If we can get that, God will be able to use us. So, let's look at one of the teachings of Jesus as we start. Matthew 16, starting in 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What this is saying, I want to make sure you understand. He's saying, if any of you desire to come after me, that's what he means by would come after me. If you really want to be my follower, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Now, This was said by Jesus before he was crucified and before the um, disciples even understood that's what would happen. When you think about it in that light, it's very significant and almost strange, unless you think about it from a spiritual perspective. Jesus is telling them they have to do something that they haven't even seen yet. You have to take up your cross and follow me. Part of taking up our cross, and this is, this is where my heart is at this morning, it's not just about, in fact, it's not at all about being a righteous, good person. It's about crucifying everything about yourself that you think can do anything for God. All self-reliance. When he says take up your cross, all self-reliance of every form has to be crucified if you want to serve the Lord. And again today, for somebody who doesn't know me, if I seem angry, I'm not angry. I'm, I'm, I have been so burdened that I don't know how to preach this except to just launch into it. You can't serve God with your own flesh, with your own strength, with your own works, with your own efforts, with anything about yourself. It's all going to fall short. No matter your attempts, no matter the motivation of your heart, you can have good intentions. It's not enough. Do you understand? Good intentions don't save you. If you could be saved through good intentions, you wouldn't need Jesus. You could just have some good intentions. Everything about you is utterly inadequate. You have to have a Savior. And when you begin to understand, I can't... Just follow Jesus however I want to. That's not following Christ. You might be following something you invented that you call God. That's not God. Which is an idol. Which is one of the main sins. If you want to follow Christ, you have to be willing to let go of everything about yourself. That's the first thing. And I'm talking to saved church members as well as people who aren't yet saved. All of us. Myself included. I can't preach this message with the strength of my own mind. I can't preach what's on my heart with some kind of preparation I did. That's why I haven't used any of this stuff yet. Because it has to come from God. 
If you really want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. You must deny yourself. For everyone who desires to save his own life will lose it. If your motivation in serving God is to try to get something for yourself, you're losing out. You're not getting it. You don't understand. And as long as you try to cling to something you can do and do it your own way, you won't be saved. Every person who has ever come to know God in the free pardon of sin, as some people say, that is only possible when you get to the end of yourself. Repentance, really, at its most fundamental level, is unconditional surrender. Some scholars say it's changing your life. You can't change your life on a fundamental, supernatural, spiritual level unless the Holy Spirit does it for you. I've tried. Even those of you who are saved and good followers of God, you know this. How many times have you tried a diet that didn't work? How many times have you tried to quit smoking if some of you smoke or quit using tobacco? There's things that you can't do without the Lord's help. And I'm not saying that with any criticism. I have my own things. My thing is trying to handle it on my own, among other things. Until you let go of all of that, your life's not going to be saved. Every shred of self-reliance has to be stripped away from you. That is why Scripture teaches the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves those who have a contrite or crushed spirit. That's why the psalmist David says, I cried out to the Lord and He heard me and inclined His ear to my cry. As long as you come to God trying to present something that you've done to satisfy Him, that's the wrong approach. That goes all the way back to the first two children in the world, Cain and Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice acceptable before God, and God accepted it and forgave him. And Cain brought the fruits of his own labor. A bunch of pretty vegetables and maybe flowers. He laid out all of his work before the Lord. And then he was mad when God didn't save him. Mad's too small of a word. He was so angry he killed his own brother. And you know what the Lord told him? When he came to him, he said, uh, Your brother's blood has cried out to me from the ground. Why have you done this evil thing? And then he said, If you do good, will you not be accepted? I want you to understand what the Lord... The Lord was telling Cain, If you truly repent, I can still save you. But if you do evil, you won't be accepted, and sin is crouching at your door and waiting to devour you. Friends... Every bit of self-reliance you have, saved people too, is distancing you from God. As long as you bring God the works of your hands, as long as you say, I did all this stuff for you, it's actually creating a division. It's not drawing you closer to God. What draws you close to God is realizing you can't do any of it on your own. And you can't realize that until the Holy Spirit shows you deeply. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about letting go. Surrendering. That's what repentance really is fundamentally. Whoever desires to save his own life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I want to expand that some more. Sometimes in life, people want to live their own life the way they want to live it, to the extent that they never surrender to the Lord, and their life is going to be lost in eternity. 
That's heavy duty. That, that's the main reason I preach, to warn sinners. The main, I mean, the bigger reason I preach is because God called me to and I'm trying to do what He burdened me to do. But I'm talking about functionally. My, my heart as a preacher is that people might be moved by the Holy Spirit, drawn by Jesus, shown their lost condition, and repent so that they might spend eternity with Him and serve Him in this life. You can have your life the way you want it now, but that may keep you from an eternity with Jesus. You sure it's worth it? And when I say have your life the way you want it, I'm not necessarily talking about living a a manifestly sinful life. I'm talking about you holding on to some of your own religious activities instead of crucifying those, taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's so dangerous. I preached a sermon one time called Religiously Disadvantaged. Sometimes religiously trained people are the hardest people for God to reach. It's not that hard, it doesn't seem, for Him to reach a a person who's a visible sinner, who has problems with alcohol or other issues. I've seen Him save people like that and their lives are transformed and it's amazing and clear and no doubt about it. And then I've seen religious people struggle for years because they just can't get their mind out of the way. You can't do it on your own. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So, the first thing that's really on my heart that I want you to dwell on, that I pray the Holy Spirit would get to you about, in this building or listening later, because I don't know who's saved, is, (laughs) do you really know Jesus? Or are you on the way to forfeiting your soul? I don't know the answer to that for you. I know the answer to that for me. And we may get into that some more. Um, When Jesus came into the world, it was unlike anything that had ever happened. And God, through His foreknowledge, ordained a man to prepare the coming of the Christ. Jesus said about John the Baptist that no one greater than him in term of prophet or preacher ever lived. He said the law and the prophets were until John. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the man that I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. Jesus called John the greatest preacher. And John recognized that he wasn't even worthy to take a latch off Jesus' sandals. He wasn't even worthy to bow down and help him get his shoes off. You want to serve God, that's what it takes. Whoever exalts himself will be abased, but whoever is abased will be exalted. God, Jesus exalted John, and John recognized his own need. And that's how he was able to be exalted. But he came preaching... I want to read you this from the Amplified Version because it expands it from Matthew 3. This gets into what's on my heart. In those days, John the Baptist appeared, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, along the western side of the Dead Sea, and saying, Repent, 
Live your life in a way that proves repentance. Seek God's purpose for your life, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the one who was mentioned by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the road for the Lord. Make his pathways straight, level, and direct. Now, this same John had clothing made of camel's hair and a wide leather band around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. At that time, Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins or after they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath and judgment to come? So, produce fruit that is consistent with repentance, demonstrating new behavior that proves a change of heart and a conscious decision to turn away from sin. And I would add this, because God has actually regenerated you. And do not presume to say to yourselves as a defense, we have Abraham for our father, so our inheritance assures us of salvation. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children, descendants for Abraham, and already the axe of God's judgment is swinging toward the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you in water because of your repentance. That is, because you are willing to change your your life, after God has changed your inner self. But He, the Messiah who is coming after me, is mightier, more powerful, more noble than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to remove, even as His slave. He will baptize you who truly repent with the Holy Spirit, and you who remain unrepentant, He will baptize with fire or judgment. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will thoroughly clear out His threshing floor. He will gather His wheat and to his barn, and he will burn up the chaff, the unrepentant, with unquenchable fire. That's why I preach like I do. I don't want you to be burned up with unquenchable fire. Here's the thing. Eternity is real. Heaven is real. I like the idea of heaven. And what glimpses I've gotten of the presence of God, I think it'll be a wonderful place. But Scripture teaches us hell is also real. And... I think sometimes too much focus is placed on that in religion. But it is a real place. And if you don't trust the Lord for salvation and He doesn't save you, you'll end up there. It's a terrible thing. That's why we preach to warn people of the judgment to come. This is hard. I don't even like to say it. I don't like the the idea of that. But it's what Jesus taught. It's what He preached. It's what His people preached. So I have to when He burdens me to. Now, we see in the preaching of John the Baptist a divide. What do I mean by that? I don't really understand all that was going on. This is amazing to me that a man appeared out of nowhere wearing really strange clothing and preaching something nobody ever really heard before. And then they all came so he could baptize them. I mean, God had to be in this or it wouldn't have been happening. But John was doing what was prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament that someone would come and prepare a way for the Lord. He was helping people recognize their hopeless, helpless, lost, sinful condition, giving them a chance to repent, and then baptizing them as an evidence that they had repented and trusted God. So that Jesus could have somebody to work with to establish His ecclesia. 
Do you realize that? And the gospel that John preached divided people. Did he like to divide people? I don't think he enjoyed it. He ended up losing his head because of it. But, but this was the gospel that he preached. And we see this division that there were sincere people who were coming to him to be baptized. And he observed this based on their outward fruits. And those people he baptized. Now, could John see into their souls? No. Could he see their hearts and know for sure? No. Only the Word of God, the Logos, Jesus Christ, can do that. The Word is sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus is the only one that can see into your soul and know if you know Him or not. I can't do that. And I want, you, I want to tell you something even harder. You can deceive your own self. You can think you're okay and not be. And I'm not only talking about salvation. Primarily I'm talking about that. But I'm talking about just how we are in life. There have been plenty of times in life I thought I was right about something and I wasn't. Even Jesus, even our own selves, even those of us who know God, Jesus has to show us what's true about our own insides. The deepest thoughts of our hearts He has to reveal to us because we don't always perceive our own selves properly. So, John was not looking into people's hearts and deciding if they were saved or not. He wasn't saving them. But he was observing the kind of actions, the kind of things they said, and he would not baptize somebody who didn't show evidence that they actually had repented. That's why he called them a brood of vipers. That's uh, snakes. He said, you're a, you're a den of snakes. I'm not going to baptize you because nothing you're doing suggests that you actually know God. Wow. Can you imagine a preacher preaching that today? He would be looking for a new job. Probably fire him. Most churches. But the true congregations of God, that is still preached. Maybe not all the time. Maybe not as much as it should be. But we're not here. Listen, our culture has conditioned all of us to believe that part of the role of church leaders is to help everybody get along. My role is not to help you get along. My role is to preach the gospel so you will take up your cross and follow Christ. And when you do that, you'll esteem your brother and sister higher than yourself. And then you will get along because you'll be agreeing on the things that actually matter. I'm not interested in false unity. I'm not interested in going along to get along. I'm interested in the power of God uniting people who otherwise wouldn't maybe get along. From many different backgrounds. This church building today is full of a lot of different people from a lot of different settings, a lot of different backgrounds. And God can use us all as one family, one body to worship Him. But only if we get over ourselves. And that's hard. Because, as I was praying before I preached, there's too much of myself in the way. So John preached. He didn't back down. I pray that I would have more boldness. I'll be, I don't know if I want to be as bold as him, but I hope God will help me be bold. That's my flesh talking, my heart. I want it. 
But the gospel he preached, which was the truth, divided the fake people from the real people. The wheat from the chaff. And that was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would preach. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is something that is confounding if you don't understand it from the Holy Spirit. Luke 12, verse 49. Jesus, his words. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Most of us would say, yes, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We sing all the songs about it. And there are scriptures that talk about him being the prince of peace and bringing peace. But these are the words of Jesus. He's saying the practical implications of me coming into the world, this is what it causes. Do you think I came to give peace to the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From now on... Five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In In Matthew 10, it's recorded like this. Do not think that I'm come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you really want to be found by Christ? then you got to let go of your life. And I'm talking to saved and lost both. If you've never been saved by the grace of God, there has to come a point where the most important thing to you is Him making you okay. And until you get to that point, you won't be saved. But those of you who have experienced that, until you get to the point that you say, I can't even serve you unless you help me, your life's going to be a shadow of what it could be. I'm not telling you something I think. I'm telling you what Jesus said about himself. I'm quoting him. Jesus wasn't, his goal wasn't to cause division. His goal was to preach truth. But truth divides people. The fake from the authentic. The wheat from the chaff. The real converts from the false converts. The Pharisees from the true followers of Christ. Jesus said in one place, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That sounds really nice. You know what it did? It divided people. They tried to kill him. It says, from thenceforward they sought how they might kill him. You know why? Because the people who wanted to kill him, they said, we have Abraham to our father. How dare you say that we're not free? We've never been in bondage to any man. Do you remember the hundreds of years <laughs> that the Jewish people spent in bondage in Egypt? And they, through their religious brainwashing, were so blind to their own need that they told the Savior of the world, we've never been in bondage and we don't need you. We have Abraham. Talk about religiously disadvantaged. It's danger. Religion is dangerous. And I've said this before, Jesus was the enemy of dead religion. I hate religion. I hate it with a righteous hatred. 
Religion from men is perverse. It distracts. The only thing that works is the pure gospel of Christ. Now, I have seen this division play out in people's families. Some of you have too. I know people, when God saved them, they went home and got in a big fight with their parents. I knew a man, some of you have heard this before, he was Indonesian, primarily Muslim country. And he came over here to study. We were friends in college, and he was going to school at some other college. And uh, he became very ill. He almost died. He was hospitalized. And some Christians, people who really knew the Lord from his campus, came to the hospital. And they said, can we pray for you? And he said, no. But he was too weak to stop them. So they prayed for him anyway. And by his own words, he said, the power of God came, and I repented, and he saved me. And then here's what he told me. I can't go home to my family or they will have me killed. I'm talking about now. Like, this was 2006 or seven. This is not some faraway historical thing. There, there is still division brought about by the true gospel. And I could tell you story after story. Here's what I want you to realize with that, and then I'm going to keep going. I, I feel like this message, like there's like three or four or five different messages uh, that I'm just going to have to bring what's on my heart and see what the Lord does with it, because I don't have some polished presentation today. We have to get to the point that we're willing to embrace the truth no matter what it causes. No matter how uncomfortable it might make us, no matter how uncomfortable it might make other people, we have to be willing to embrace the truth no matter how much it costs. And I'm not talking about embracing the truth in some um, self-righteous religious way. I'm talking about embracing the truth of Jesus Christ, which is encompassed by the love of Christ. But His love compels us not to back down. Uh, I talked about the gospel of Christ bringing division, separating fake from real, separating true converts from false converts, separating people who want Him from people who want some version of Him. And I also mentioned, and here's what I want to dwell on now, the importance of His congregation, the ecclesia. I said He spent His ministry establishing this institution. That's why it matters. So I want you to listen to me now. To both church members, saved people, and people who might be searching. It's impossible to fully serve the Lord. It is impossible to fully serve the Lord until you submit to His commands. That's what the take up your cross and follow me. That's what He's getting to. If you really want to follow me, if you really want to do what I'm pleased with, you have to submit to what I've commanded, not just in my word, but through the Holy Spirit to your own heart. There's probably things in some of your lives that you know you shouldn't be doing, and you are anyway. And you used to feel convicted about it, you used to feel condemned, you used to feel bad, and you don't anymore. It's not because it became okay, it's because you became desensitized to your own sin. Are you willing to crucify that too?
If you've been born, this part of the commands of Jesus is, if you've been born from above, if you've had a spiritual birth, if you know God, you need to follow the Lord in baptism. And if you've been saved and baptized according to the New Testament model, and I'll I'll explain that more, if you've been baptized in a New Testament way, then you need to be an active member of a local congregation. There's people here who need to unite with a local assembly. Now, if God's not leading you to, don't. I'm not putting myself in the place of God, but there are people who need to. And you don't realize, or you've ignored, or you've become deaf to the importance of it. You need to be an active member of a local congregation, a local body of Christ. Before I expand on that, I want to say to the church members here currently, to Hendersonville Missionary Baptist Church, do you understand the gravity of being part of this body? Do you get it? This is where I feel so heavy. And this is where I pray the Lord will give me boldness. Because I think a lot of us don't understand how important the body of Christ is. A lot of us at different times in my life, no, let me say it how it's in my heart, not soften it. A lot of you think you can serve God outside of this church on your own just fine. There's one problem with it. That's not what Jesus taught. If you've been truly saved and you've had a spiritual birth and you've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, you owe Him everything. We take it for granted. I know, I know, if I were out there checking the mail after church and this car come by and was about to squish me and one of you, maybe Brother Allen, dove in front, pushed me out of the way, saved my life and he died. I would spend the rest of my life trying to live in a way that was worthy of that sacrifice. Wouldn't, wouldn't you? I mean, somebody actually died for you. you. Everything you thought about, you would think, I've been given a new lease on life. I've been given a gift. I can't do whatever I want. He paid for it with His life. I can't do whatever I want. And yet, if you've been saved by God's grace, you've been purchased by the blood of somebody who died for you, and some of you are still doing whatever you want. All of us at different times. But some of you are perpetually doing whatever you want. And it's why you're miserable. Say, are you directing that at me? No, because I don't know your heart. If it sticks and makes you uncomfortable, then it's for you. If it goes right past you because you are trying to serve the Lord faithfully, then it's not for you today. (laughs) But it might be later. You owe Him everything. We owe Him everything. I owe Him everything. If you've been saved by God's grace, listen, there was a point in your life where at least in your heart, I actually said it out loud, but at least in your heart you came to the point where you said, I'll do anything if you'll just help me. I said it. And then the Lord called me to preach later and I said, anything but that. Because I knew the weight that it would be. If you've experienced a moment like that where God saved your soul, don't you want to follow Him? Don't you want to submit to His teachings and His commands? And He spent His life establishing this institution and He said that it was important. 
Those of you, I don't know who they are, but if there's somebody here who hasn't yet experienced that, I want to ask you, have you met Christ in a supernatural way? I've heard one person said it this way, something outside my body came in. You better be careful, some other kind of things can come in too. But she meant the Holy Spirit because He changed her. Heard my grandfather talk about it when he was a missionary in Russia. He said she was the cleaning lady, cleaning, mopping the floors on her hands and knees with rags that were black. And when, he, when she realized he was from America, he said she grabbed and did this to her heart and said, Thank you, Americans, for the Bible. I eat my Jesus. I drink my Jesus. <laughs> That's somebody who's been changed in a country where she could still be persecuted for admitting that out loud. At that time. Have you had an experience like that? Has God actually changed your life? If He hasn't, I'm not being mean to you. I'm telling you, it'll be the best thing that ever happened. Has there been a moment in your life when you really repented and trusted Christ and experienced something different than you ever experienced before that lasted? Some of you might have had some religious things happen and you keep rededicating your life to God or some stuff like that. But have you ever been changed permanently? If you haven't, you're not okay. And I realize that makes some people uncomfortable. I'm not trying to be mean. But if you can get past yourself and surrender to the Lord, it will be the best thing that ever happened to you. And for me, I'm a stubborn head. It, it was the hardest thing that I ever got to the point of repenting and being saved. But when it happened, I realized this is the most wonderful, natural thing. I mean, it makes so much sense now. But leading up to that point, me trying to do it how I wanted, with my own mind, with my own problems, with my own noise, it was literally impossible. And I was miserable. Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about? Now, I want to make this clear, uh, lest anybody misunderstand me. I'm not campaigning for church members. If I was, I'd be preaching a whole lot more like those TV preachers. And y'all been here long enough to know I don't preach that way. If I were campaigning for church members, I'd be telling you your best life now and health, wealth, and prosperity and everything's going to be okay instead of what God put in my heart. But I am telling you, if the Lord has saved you and you feel like this is where you should be, and even if you don't feel that way, you need to be somewhere. It'll be the best way to live your life for Him. Jesus never called anybody to follow Him without counting the cost. In fact, when you look at the way He evangelized, it was almost like He was trying to talk people out of following Him. It was almost like He preached, Oh, you want to follow Me? Are you sure you want to? Here's how hard it's going to be. You'll be hated of all men for My name. I don't actually have a home. I don't have anywhere to sleep. You sure you want to follow Me? He didn't say it maybe that flippant, but those paraphrased are His words. So, I'm not trying to get you to join the church. I don't want you to unless the Lord's in it. I don't. And just like John the Baptist, I'm not going to baptize you unless it seems like you're saved. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. <clears throat> but, 
if you really feel like you've been saved and you want to follow Christ, are you interested in submitting yourself to this narrow path? He said it's a narrow way and you should strive to enter and you should earnestly contend to enter. Th- he called himself the narrow gate. He said, the only way to the sheepfold is through me, the gate. Everybody else who tries to enter a different way is a thief and a robber. I don't want you to enter a different way because you'll be trying to steal something that can only be freely given. And I'll say this too. If somebody wants to join this congregation, there might be some cost that you don't like. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about something religious. I'm talking about... If we're going to align ourselves with Christ, we have to be willing to submit ourselves to the body that He established who's trying to serve Him in the best way she knows how. So I want to talk about that for just a few minutes before I close. This is where I feel at a loss. But I want to try to help everybody understand. I'm talking the seasoned, long-standing saints of God who've been at this church forever or other similar churches. I'm talking about the new people who have been coming a little while. I'm talking about people maybe who've never even exposed anything. I might be listening online later. The most important thing that could ever happen in your life is for you to come to know God in an authentic and real way. Jesus told Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a famous, well-known, well-respected, smart, religious expert. And he came to Jesus because he wanted to know what was wrong with him. He knew something was off. You know what Jesus told him? You have to be born anew. You have to be born from above. And he explained how the wind works and how that's how the Holy Spirit works. And I won't. I won't spend the time on that today. I might a different day. But I just want you to understand the most important thing is to actually have a spiritual birth. And this isn't a birth that happens over and over and over every time you feel bad. No, you're born once spiritually just like you're born into this world once. God establishes patterns so that we can understand truth. And just as you come into this world and you're born, it's the same spiritually. You have to be born. And then you're His. And praise God that I don't have to keep my own salvation because I would have lost it a whole bunch of times. Jesus said, those you've given me I've kept and none of them is lost. Ephesians 4.29 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed to the day of redemption. When God saves you, He stamps you with the promise of His Holy Spirit and He keeps you. The Apostle John explains it this way, and I realize this isn't a popular doctrine in a lot of churches, But what Jesus does is perfect. He said, "His John said, His seed remains in us and we cannot sin. Now we know we're sinful and we know after God saves us we still sin. So what is the apostle talking about? There is a central part of you that sometimes we call the soul or the heart. But there's something deep inside. That's the you that God saves. And that part of you is His. And that part of you is going to heaven, or that you. Everything else is a mess and it's going to die. That's what Scripture teaches. So, the most important thing is to be saved, to know God. 
All other religious activity is secondary to that. Listen, if you're not truly saved, nothing else matters. And so this congregation, the best we can, and me, the best I can, we emphasize that. Because if you don't know God, nothing else matters. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what will you give in exchange for your soul? I don't want just some busy church members. I want people who know God and want to conform their life to Him. Now, this is so important to know whether you're saved that it's worth hurting your feelings about. Let me ask you which you would prefer. Uh, for me to be honest and say, here's what it takes to know God. And if you don't have something like that, pray about it and ask God if you do. And if you don't know any time in your life where there was a birth, spiritually, seek Him. For some reason, that makes people so angry. They wanted to kill Jesus when He said stuff like that. And some of you have experienced chastisement and ridicule and criticism different times over the years from people just for telling that simple truth. You can actually know God and know that you know Him. Do you realize most religious groups today, they don't preach that you can actually know God and know that you know Him? Do you know that? And I'm not picking on a denomination. I'm talking all around, all different names and nameless ones too. I asked, when I was in college, I had a buddy who was going to seminary to be a youth minister in a, in a well-known denomination. And I said, uh, let me ask you a question. How do you believe you get to heaven? How do you come to know God? You know what he told me? I've never thought about it before. Nobody's ever asked me. You're going to lead youth, supposedly, and you've never considered how you actually come to know God? That's a problem. And churches, and I'm using that word on purpose right now, are full of religiously trained people who don't actually know the person they're trying to preach about. It's dangerous. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. They'll encompass land and sea to make a proselyte, and they make them twofold more of the children of hell than before. It's bad. So, the idea of Truly finding salvation and then making sure that you've really got it is scriptural. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. (laughs) Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. He's only in you if He's in you. How do you test yourself? You examine yourself and find out if there's been a real experience... Has my life been changed? Is something inside of me different than it was before? Am I a new person? Was there a time that I repented of my sins and and He changed me? If there wasn't, you need to seek the Lord. Notice how I said that. I'm not saying you don't know Him because I don't know what's in your heart. But you need to seek the Lord if you don't have that. Very briefly, I just have to mention this here. And I'll say what I've said before. If you're getting stiff, you can stretch. (laughs) I'm not trying to be long-winded, but I have to finish what's on my heart. If you've been saved by God's grace, and you want to unite with this congregation, and you want to be baptized, 
uh, this congregation will want to hear from you. Like John the Baptist said, bring forth evidence that you actually know the Lord. We want to hear about the reason of the hope that's in you. The Bible says that too. Let every one of you be ready always to give an answer for the reason of the hope that's in you. It's very strange that sometimes you ask people, tell me about when you came to know the Lord and they get mad. When the Bible says all of you should be ready to give an answer at any time. It's weird. So if you've been saved and you feel like you should be here, and I'm not talking about today. This is not a join the church campaign. I want you to, in fact, I hope nobody joins today unless the Lord's just really in it. I want you to dwell on what I'm preaching and make sure you get it. But if you've really been saved and you need to be baptized, we're going to want to hear about it. And we're not judging what's in your heart. We don't know. But the scriptural model that we've been taught is to look and see if it seems like you actually know the Lord. That's most important. And so oftentimes... People will join a congregation and they'll be baptized. Sometimes they'll come from a church of like faith and order. Maybe you've heard that expression before. I want to explain what I mean by it anyway. Like faith means a congregation that preaches the gospel of salvation primarily like, like I do. Like, like we try to. And what do I mean by that? That God has to save you. A congregation that practices decisional evangelism is not of like faith. What does that mean? Decisional evangelism. I'm going to walk you through some scriptures, ask you if you agree, hear your confession, and then tell you you're saved. Your conversion is not based on a decision. It's not based on your mind. It's based on something happening inside. If the church that you're from does that, that's not a church of like faith. Is that clear? I want to make sure it makes sense. There are all kinds of congregations. Some of them are well-meaning, but we already talked earlier about how having good intentions doesn't mean you're right. They'll have somebody shake their hand. I'm talking about the preacher. Or have you fill out a card. I've, seen, I've been to all kinds of congr- churches, and people will come up and pray, and somebody after a minute or two will go up to them and talk them through. And they call it leading them to Christ. Show me that in the, in the Bible. That phrase is not in the New Testament. You know what you see in the New Testament? Repent. You know what you see in the New Testament? What Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind moves wherever it will, just like the Holy Spirit. You hear the sound, you can't tell where it comes from. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. I will never tell a person that they're saved because I can't tell. It's dangerous When a person tries to take the job of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict, condemn, reprove, forgive, and reassure, and other things. But His job is to let you know you're okay, not mine. So like faith, there's other things, but those are the main things. Are there altar practices consistent with the New Testament? Or do they try to uh, have a speedway to get to God? (laughs) To, To streamline the process? I make it really simple and use Bible words. Do they preach a narrow way or a wide way? The narrow way is through Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God. The wide way is all the other religious stuff. Okay? And then when I say like faith, like order, like order, we're talking about, and this one is not as important, but it's still important because it's what Jesus established. We're talking about a congregation who tries to 
uh, do things in the way that Jesus taught and govern themselves in a congregational method. Like faith, if a, pers- if, a, if, a, if a congregation says, you just say this prayer and you're okay, just accept Christ and you're okay, if they do any of the you're okays, it's not okay. And like order, listen, if they're managed by some bishop in some other state or they get their authority through the Pope, they're not of like order. You understand? The, the New Testament model is a local autonomous body of Christ submitting to Christ as the head. If the government's different than that, it's not a church of like faith and order. And that's why you'll see, I'm trying to explain this, that's why we are selective about who we take letters of recommendation from and baptisms from. Because if it doesn't conform to the model Jesus established, it's not a New Testament uh, baptism. And it matters because Jesus taught us it matters. Now, I could spend a lot more time explaining all of this, and I would be more than happy to talk about it in person. But if anybody ever wants to join the congregation of of God here at Hendersonville, I want you to understand what you're getting into. So feel free to ask. But if you're from somewhere where you already understand and the Lord's leading you, you need to follow Him, okay? I'm going to close by giving you two of my own life examples of why... It is so important to me, and I will lose friends over it, and I I would die for it. I don't say that lightly. To hold on to this foundational doctrine that only God can let you know if you're okay. In college, I'm going to tell you about two different friends of mine. Uh, And this, I've had piles, I don't know how many, dozens and dozens of similar experiences where people thought they were saved and found out later that they weren't. Now, I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. If you're really saved, I can't make you doubt it. <laughs> Go back to God and get reassurance if you know Him. I had a friend in college. She was like a little sister to me. And she, she seemed like the sweetest, I mean, the most uh, sweet, innocent. She's still like a little kid. Like a grown woman with children, and she's still like a little kid in her innocence and her, her approach to life. And... There was a time that she, she said she was saved, and we had this group in college, this Bible study group, where we would get together on Thursday nights, and it was church. I mean, it was powerful. The Lord would meet with us, and it's still some of the best services I've been in. And she would be there, and it seemed like she enjoyed it and looked just like all the rest of everybody else. But then there was a time when she was around 20 that she was down in tears at the altar praying. And then she would got up, and her brother was there, and I was there. She was sitting in between us, and she would take turns crying on my shoulder and then crying on his and saying she wasn't sure if she was saved. And I almost told her I thought she was. I, I pretty much said, look, like, what are you worried about? And everybody thought she was. And she sent out a Facebook message to that little group of friends just a few months ago. Now, over a decade after we got out of college. And said, uh, I'll just read you her words. She said, this is the easiest way for me to communicate to a group of people that mean so much to me. I've doubted my salvation for years. I would cling to something that wasn't real. I was a wolf in sheep's clothes. I've doubted since I was 17. I tried to figure it out when I was 20, but I still wasn't satisfied. The Lord has had such mercy on me. I can't describe how hard it was to turn to my husband now and tell him I wasn't really saved. I went to the altar last night and dug it out for myself. (laughs) 
I begged and pleaded until the Lord made it clear that I just had to have the faith and trust Him. And then I started to shout and knew it was the real thing. I'm so sorry for lying for years to the people I love the most. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord gave me another opportunity and I had to take it. I know the Lord forgave me and I believe you can too. The bottom line is I'm now beyond satisfied with what I have. I love you guys. Now, I thought she was saved. But it wasn't my job to tell her and convince her she was. What if I had really tried to? What if I had done what so many religious people do? Don't you remember what happened? I've seen you. I've seen how you serve the Lord. You wouldn't really want to serve the Lord if you didn't know Him. That's not our job. It's so dangerous. The individual person is the only one that can search out with God and figure out where they are. I'll give you one more example, and this one's a lot more close to me. This, uh, uh, I messaged her this morning and I said, I feel like I need to tell part of your testimony in my sermon. Can you just remind me of the details to make sure I didn't mix any time frame up? So let me just read you what she said. She said, I thought I came to know God when I was around 12 years old. I, I did what I was taught. I accepted and believed and confessed. But I felt nothing. And I was sincere about it. I got baptized and I really believed I knew God according to all the religious teaching I had been taught. I truly believed, I thought at the time, I knew He was the Son of God and, I did what he, and that He did what He said He did. And I truly wanted to follow Him. But over the years, there were moments where I felt like something was missing. It felt like, am I really yours? And I was reassured by the religious people around me that I just needed to have faith and believe and the doubts would go away. The problem was I never actually knew him and I didn't fully understand that at the time. People told me you wouldn't want to serve God if you didn't know him. I thought I had felt moments when I was close to God. And all the way through to my junior year of college, I had felt that I was saved. But these doubts would keep coming back. Am I really his? And I was desperately trying to understand why I felt like something was missing. And when I came to the student group and I heard all those people testifying about God saving them and knowing Him, I realized these people know they're saved. You can actually know for sure. But something was missing inside of me. But I wasn't yet ready to admit that I didn't really know God because I'd been serving Him for a decade of my life. I had gone on mission trips and served at church and done all kinds of work for Him. Since I believed I really knew Him, I began to go back in my life and look for a time when I felt peace with Him. And I was desperately searching my memories. (laughs) And my mind took me to a time in high school when I felt a calmness come over me from the Lord, I thought. But what I realize now is it was an emotional comfort because I'd been so hurt from a romantic relationship and a broken heart that I did feel that God was comforting me, but looking back on it, I had not been feeling conviction, but feeling sorry for myself. I didn't feel conviction from the Holy Spirit and then repent and then feel peace in knowing I was no longer separated from God. I felt hurt, and I felt the comfort of knowing God is real. And so, my junior year of college, I was sincerely seeking and trying to figure out why I still had all these doubts of whether I really knew God. And I just kept praying, please let me be yours. And that whole weekend, I wasn't getting anywhere because I was still trying to figure it out with my mind. I wasn't yet completely willing to admit that I might not be His. I was so thoroughly confused, I was not right, but I didn't know it. 
And I didn't want to admit that I might possibly not be saved after all of this because it felt very embarrassing. I was 21 years old, had been trying to serve the Lord for a decade, and I didn't understand how it could be possible that I thought I had been so close to Him in the past but yet still wasn't saved. And it's because I was missing it from incorrect teaching and a wrong gospel my whole life. So, it got to the point that as I was driving out of the driveway to head home, I was praying, Lord, I'm so confused, only you can clear up the mess that I am. Only you can show me. And I felt the Holy Spirit slow down my desperate analytical mind to where I could actually feel him. Feel him show me that I had been just slightly off all this time, that I had been trying all these years to figure it out on my own like a math problem. And I knew for the first time deep in my soul that he was the only one who could help me. The Lord truly has to do this. And when I began to truly cry out for the first time, Lord, please save me, that's when it happened like a snap of a finger because I had fully finally surrendered to the Lord. It was so much deeper than just admitting, believing, and confessing. I had to ask God, God to make it better and help me because I couldn't do it on my own. I told you I have piles of people I've talked to like that that have reinforced how dangerous it is for me to give you assurance. In fact, she was seeking the Lord at part of her testimony at a at a revival service, a youth service up in Indianapolis, and she I mean she was puddle of tears. Some of y'all were there. And she, she felt better. So she got up and said she was saved. And all the church came around and hugged her neck and shook her hand and bless your heart, honey. And uh, later, when all the noise died down and all the excitement, we were very close so I could be this direct. I leaned forward, looked her in the eyes, and I said, I don't believe you. I said, weren't you afraid to say that? No, if she was really saved, what's it going to hurt? But I felt it. Nothing changed. There was a big religious emotional excursion. But no change. And then she got saved on her way home in her car alone. This is why it matters. I mean, just a couple of examples. You have to know God. And so, I'll just leave you with this. I don't know what you need to do in general. If you're not saved, you need to be saved. If you're not an active member of the congregation, you need to be. Not here necessarily. I don't know where you need to be. But these are important things. And you need to be praying about it. Uh, I want to have a song, Sister Jody, get a song and um, sing a couple verses. And I want you to just wait on the Lord and see if He is prompting you and your spirit to do something. If you need to seek the Lord... I'm not saying you're lost, I don't know. But if there's something missing that you need to figure out, pray. If there's some brokenness, if there's some hurt, if there's some person you need to forgive, lay it all at the Lord's feet. If you feel like you haven't been serious about the Lord and need to commit, I'm not talking about be saved again. I'm talking about follow Him for real. And you need to join, feel free. But we're going to ask you to give a reason of the hope that's in you and make sure you have a scriptural baptism. If you feel like standing, let's stand and sing together. Just follow the Lord. Follow the Lord.